If you can believe it, Cleopatra, Benjamin Franklin, and Samuel Adams all have something in common. Our Pulitzer Prize winning guest today has written books on all of them. Stacy Schiff's first book, St. Exupery, was a finalist for the 1995 Pulitzer Prize and won numerous awards abroad. Schiff's other critically acclaimed books include Cleopatra, A Great Improvisation, Franklin, France, and the Birth of America, The Witches, Salem 1692, and her Pulitzer Prize winner, Vera, Mrs. Vladimir Nabokov. We are extremely honored to welcome Stacy Schiff to the first 50 pages. Having worked in the publishing world at Viking and as a senior editor at Simon & Schuster, what inspired you to take on the challenge of writing biography? Oh my goodness, that's such a great question. I was looking for someone to write the Santic Supri biography as an editor. I was looking for someone to commission from whom I could commission it. And the more I researched in order to sort of entice a writer toward the project, the more I sort of fell head over heels into it myself. And I think, you know, I think probably I had secretly or less, lots of secretly always wanted to write, but not known how and when to take the plunge. And it's, it was for me a very daunting thing to ever say, you know, I am publicly, I am a writer. And how do you prove that you're a writer when you're not sure how much you have to say or if you have anything to say? And the beauty of biography, um, insofar as the first book is concerned, is it has an inherent structure to it. I mean, it does have a beginning and middle and an end. The subject reliably dies at the end. <laughs> so, um, you know, insofar as you're a fledgling author and you, you you sort of think you want to write a book and you and you really want to try your hand at it, there, there was something almost comforting about the genre of biography. And I had edited a lot of biographies, so I felt I really knew something about what worked and what didn't work in terms of structure. And I assumed I would write a book and then go back into publishing, by yeah, the way. Yeah, but... I'm still waiting. A, it's, a, a <laughs> finalist. Quite happened yet. When your first book is a finalist for a Pulitzer, I'm sure people want to hear more, you know, or read more of... of... Well, it will, it will amuse you to know that when I called my then agent to say, oh my goodness, the book is a finalist. She was a very um, sort of jaded New Yorker. She was hilarious. <laughs> and the first words out of her mouth were, Stacy, that means you lost. <laughs> and you're like, here I am thinking I've made it, like my first I book. I just thought it was, exactly, I thought it was like the greatest thing that had happened to me. <laughs> it's all about perspective, yeah. right? Exactly, exactly. You wrote an essay for the Washington Post book World a Wild Back, where you humorously describe the difficulties biographers face um, during their search for subjects and the importance of choosing the right candidate for the job. So how do you possibly decide who you're going to write about? Well, I think in a funny way, you end up without a choice. I mean, think in a way you start, you know, you start casting about and you, you, you perhaps read about someone who you've been faintly obsessed with for years or someone who's just crossed your radar. And you begin to see either that something resonates or doesn't resonate. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like any other relationship. Sometimes people speak to you and sometimes they leave you cold. And then every once in a while you realize that, um, you know, your subject almost has his, has got his hooks into you, that there's something that has just drawn you and you keep obsessively going back to him or her. And that generally has to do not, I think, just with the subject's personality and how the two of you relate as human beings or as sensibilities, but has to do, I think, probably with some of the larger questions you want to answer. I mean, I think when I started 
the Nabokov book, I was thinking a lot about marriage and what marriage constituted. I was newly married. You know, what is a what is a collaboration? What is a literary collaboration? Um, and with Cleopatra, we had just come out of a sort of bruising election cycle, and I was thinking a lot about women in power and you know how do we, how are women's voices heard and how are they interpreted? And in this case, with with Samuel Adams, um, who was a sort of unexpected partner. Um, I think we'd all been thinking a great deal about democracy and what democracy constituted and where it came from. And I knew relatively little about Adams, who in fact had a cameo in my Benjamin Franklin book. And I sort of went back to him and started reading him and couldn't get over, first of all, all of the tributes from the other founders as to as, as in, how, how central he was and how crucial he was, how critical he was to the cause. And also was very much... Um, I think looking for, whether I could articulate it or not, someone who was deeply heroic in a way, who could stand his ground. I and mean, this is after five years writing about the Salem witch trials. So I was really looking for someone who was willing to take a stand, an unpopular stand, at a very difficult time. That's a great answer to that question. By the way, it's all very rational. It's probably for some other reason that the biographer is unaware of herself. So there. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, you you mentioned you start out wanting to answer questions, um, but do you find that as you sort of go down the research rabbit hole, you find more questions as a result of your research into the subject? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and what's even worse, you find questions that you realize you'll never be able to answer. Yeah. So, yes. So, so, so that's the worst part. I would I mean, say that would be the yeah. worst part. Especially when you know you spend five or six years alone in a room with this person, you'd think they could deliver up answers to you, right? <laughs> um, but yes, and I think with, in this case in particular, I was attracted to him because of all of these salutes from the other founders. And his pages really do read like anthems to what this country stands for. But I, I didn't understand the depth of how shrewd, either how shrewd he is or how om omnipresent he is. I mean, he's, he's right there behind every single one of the moments that, you know, we learned will be first learned U.S. history in grade school. And, you know, you don't know that he's behind the scenes sort of exploiting the Boston Massacre or masterminding the Boston Tea Party. And yet there he is. And yet he leaves unanswered questions about how implicated he is in either of those moments and whom he's in touch with. Because everything, of course, is behind the scenes. It's no fingerprints. It's fomenting revolution. So the idea here is to do all of this somewhat surreptitiously or as surreptitiously as possible. So you end up at the end of the day, being able to plant him at or near these events, but without being able to answer all of the all of the questions. So as you can probably tell by our first couple of questions, we're absolutely fascinated by biographers. One of my favorite snippets I found while researching for our interview is the essay that you wrote for a draft uh, the New York Times series about the art and craft of writing titled The Dual Lives of the Biographer. I especially love the part where you talked about the gifts a life writer needs to have. You know, a touch of OCD, a lack of imagination, a large desk, neutrality of Swiss proportions, tactlessness, a high tolerance for archival dust. Uh, what do you think are the biggest hurdles biographers face when writing their subject's story? Well, first of all, thank you for unearthing that piece, because other than my mother, you might be the only person who's ever read that piece. <laughs> oh, my God, I loved it. it. Was, I was like, it, I want to ask all probably, the things. <laughs> it's probably the most personal piece I've ever written. You know, the, the reason one of the lovely things about biography is that the biographer is very 
sort of indirectly on the page. She never kind of puts herself out there. And that piece I thought was a very revelatory piece, which I was a little nervous about. Um, I think the biggest, the biggest problem a biographer has is that by definition, you need to travel the road intellectually, geographically, emotionally that your subject travels. And that is a huge financial undertaking. And especially if you have a subject who's, you know, in any way, you know, on two continents or peripatetic in any way, you want to visit those sites. You want to hear what they he heard. You want to see what they saw. Um, in the case of Cleopatra, by the way, this was particularly um, onerous because her Alexandria doesn't exist anymore. I mean, the Nile isn't even in the right place. So it's very hard to look out at the Mediterranean. You can look out at the Mediterranean. You can see what she saw. You know where the moon is. And pretty much every other landmark has been obliterated. So that was a really difficult task with Cleopatra. Um, but to be able, but that sense of getting the context and being able to somehow restore the context. And often it's, you know, you're dealing in lost worlds. So often that's very difficult. It can be a pre-war context. It can be an ancient context. And, and then I think you have to, you know, you end up just ingesting so much material. And somehow, I think this is to me the other largest hurdle, um, you have to rise above it, or you have to forget it, or you have to mm. be very good about um, just leaving things on the cutting room floor. And that's hard. It's difficult always, but it's especially difficult when you've, you know, traveled halfway around the world to get a detail or an anecdote. And then you find yourself thinking, but you know what, I don't really need this. So it, you know, there's this sort of crushing moment when you realize that maybe you've either over-researched or you've kind of over-egged the narrative. I could go on because, believe me, talking about what the what the what the obstacles are to the biographer is all I spend my life thinking about. <laughs> there's another tiny little snippet. I can just that whine, I... <laughs> you know. I also love the part where you're like, it's no great secret that the best subject is the ill-behaved subject. I was like, I hadn't really thought about it like that, but I was like, oh yeah, like you want to have like some conflict or something that you really need to explore about that person's life. You know, there's a wonderful old um, dramatic adage that I think of very often, which is keep your hero in trouble. Oh. And it's exactly right. I mean, the more turbulent the situation, the more dire the, the, your subject circumstances, the better. I mean, nobody wants to read a biography of a happy marriage, right? Even yeah. though I did try to write one. <laughs> and as you alluded to earlier, Samuel Adams was behind a lot of the trouble um, for the British crown in um, what became the American Revolution. So let's, you know, you, you kind of talked a little bit about Samuel Adams. When, when did you decide to write this book? You know, I keep meaning to go back to look at the contract. I think it was six years. It's five or six years ago. And I had been thinking about um, another subject, a woman, in fact, where I, I would on the biography um story of the library, I would walk in and sort of go to the right to read her papers. And I kept finding myself kind of veering to the left and ending up at the end of the afternoon, sitting on the floor in front of the Adams papers instead. So it was one of those things where you're, you're, you're rerouting yourself without really entirely admitting that you, that you've done so. But the importance was just so crucial to, and, and suddenly re and revealed itself over time to be so much more crucial just in terms of his involvement with every element of what we would today call civil resistance theory. And he seemed to have sort of intuited how to do this so that he's organizing boycotts and pickets and a, and a news service and extra legal institutions and a propaganda division, basically, all kind of from scratch and all during the years when 
revolutionary ideas are indeed floating about, but nobody has yet really contemplated the idea of independence. And for me, you know, often with historical figures, I find myself thinking that I know things about someone whose name I know. Um, but then I usually find out that I really don't know that much about them. And I feel like that's kind of as I'm reading your book, I realize I really don't know anything about Samuel at, you know, like, besides the talking points, rote memorization, maybe from early civics type of, you know, history classes. And that was that was the same for me, by the way, too. And, and it's particularly embarrassing, because I was born in Adams, Massachusetts. <laughs> and so I thought, well, you probably know all nothing. kinds of stuff about you know, because, you know, we're from Iowa and we learn the Iowa history and that, well, yeah, I'm sure you learn a lot of revolutionary history being from Massachusetts. I don't know. But this was, I'm glad you said that this is the book that felt the closest to Cleopatra in the sense that everyone recognizes his name. And granted, people now recognize his name in part because they think he's a beer. Yeah. But everybody, everybody recognizes the name Samuel Adams. Nobody knows where to go from there. Sometimes people say, oh, he was a firebrand, wasn't he? Oh, how is he, was he related to John? But it was the same as Cleopatra. We knew kind of one or two little things about him, but not really how to where he felt where he fell in that constellation of founders. And then to me, the, the I think the crucial moment was I was reading, you know, Paul Revere's accounts of riding to Lexington. And I realized that we all know about Paul Revere's ride, but none of us stops for a single second to think, where was he going? Yeah. And where he's going mm -hmm. is to warn Samuel Adams and John Hancock that they're about to be arrested by the British. So, you know, it was suddenly this, you know, dawning, you know, crazy thought of, wait a minute, we all know this, but we actually don't even think about the other, what's, what was Paul Revere's destination? And another, so and I don't, I read this in, in doing some research for this interview, and I, I can't cite my source, I'm sorry, but there was a, a statement about um, legend, you know, the, the legend of historical um, people, and how that plays more into our consciousness than the actual fact. And I thought, yeah, well, that, that's so true. Like we, like you said, know the midnight ride of Paul Revere and, um, you know, we can talk about that, but yeah, we don't, we don't really know necessarily the facts behind that. That's why we the need part, biographers to tell us. Oh, stories. I'm glad you, I'm glad you think that we serve a use. Um, I, I feel as if legend always wins too. Yeah. And I feel as if you can publish a book on Cleopatra and then two minutes later, someone is still saying, you know, she appeared before Julius Caesar in a roll of carpet, which she never did, except in the Elizabeth <laughs> Taylor version. But I feel like legend, legend persists for a reason, right? It has a hold on us. It, it, there's a reason why it formed in that particular way, why it was braided into, why the history braided itself into that particular manifestation. I mean, Adams is an interesting one because he, much to our dismay, he he doesn't really leave a record. He purposely doesn't leave a record for all kinds of reasons, which we can talk about. But because of that, he finds himself he finds other people writing the history. So he's in this very sort of poignant position of, as an older man, he lives into the 19th century, reading the history of the revolution, it, which is not at all the history he, of course, firsthand observed. And that to me is sort of the most, you know, that's gotta be such an insult to be re reading about these these days at which you were so central and your, and your role has been somewhat 
transfigured, shall we say, by very imaginative historians. So you are known for being an exceptional researcher and loving the thrill that comes from reading archival materials in their most original form. And as librarians, we do love a good source. Um, what kind of challenges did you run into in accessing primary source material when writing The Revolutionary? Uh, because like you said, Samuel Adams destroyed a lot of his writings. So as librarians, you'll feel the way I did about <laughs> John Adams's description of being at the Continental Congress with Samuel Adams and watching his cousin Samuel feed his papers to the fire. I mean, just I can't even I couldn't even write that passage because it made me it just broke my heart so much. But you know, Adams is very interested in making sure that no one is implicated in in essentially overthrowing a government. So he's very careful to cover his tracks. And because of that, we end up with a very inadequate paper trail. So we don't know what he fed to the fire. Don Adams also talks about Samuel cutting his papers into shreds so that no one um, no one could be betrayed. Um, the, the good news is there's a lot on paper. After You have to read it. This too is like Cleopatra. You have to kind of read it from the opposite direction. Adams' enemies, which is to say the crown officers in America had a great deal to say about him because they, he was running circles around them. And so there are numerous what we would consider tributes to his genius in their dismay and disdain. So a lot of the material, and this is like Cleopatra, where you're reading what the Roman um, historians had to say about a Greek woman, and it's all, it's, it's all raw contempt, basically. A lot of what we know of Adams comes from the very harried dispatches that the the royal governor or the lieutenant governor are sending back to London about this, you know, restless colony and these few desperados who seem to be intent on on upsetting the apple cart. So that's a sort of that was a sort of um, lucky find, or at least that was a, a mother load of material. Yeah. But a, a great deal is missing. It's exactly as you say. I mean, there's not we don't have a solid record for him. His papers are in the New York Public Library. Um, and they're terrific, but there's a lot that's missing, and the personal letters, for the most part, are missing. A horror. I know. <laughs> I'm like in pain. I know, like, I mean, I'm like, I don't even know how to respond. I'm like, oh. I mean, seriously, there's, you know, literally having to write that line of John Adams saying, you know, I was watching Samuel feeding his papers to the fire. I just, it just breaks the heart, right? It just, it's how could how could anyone do that? It's terrible. And and the worst part is that John does try to convince Samuel. John's younger and he's recruited by his cousin Samuel. And later in life, John writes him and says, you really need to collect your papers from those years. Because for those 12 years, Samuel Adams really is the man at the hour. He really is the person who most able, is able to articulate what become the founding ideals. And John says, you know, all kinds of countries are going to want to read what you wrote during those years. You have to collect this material. And Adams never does it. And, you know, his reasons are several, I suspect, but because of that, we are cheated. We have to go back and sort of figure out in the newspapers which pieces were his and which were not, because it's all of it written under pseudonyms, which is a whole other guessing game yeah. in one place. So besides the dramatic action and fast-paced storytelling of your book, I loved the humor and wit that you were able to infuse into how you told Adams's story. 
In the very first few lines, you say, Samuel Adams delivered what may count as the most remarkable second act in American life. It was all the more confounding after the first. He was a perfect failure until middle age. And I actually read this to one of my staff yesterday, and she just started chuckling at the desk. She's like, that's really how that book begins? I was like, yeah. I was like, you got to pick up a biography. Uh, those, you know, lines just, I, it just sucked me right in. Uh, what impact do you hope your witty writing style adds to the reader's experience of this book? That's such a lovely question. First of all, I just want to go on the record as saying that my editor didn't like that first line. And we had, to, and we had a little, uh, we had a little butting of heads over it. So bless you for redeeming me on that one. I loved it. Um, I just feel like it's the, it's my job to make you want to turn the page, right? I mean, if I, if I don't make, if I make someone put down the book, I just failed. So there has to be, and you know, there's so many sort of delicious aspects to this particular story as well, but I feel like there has to be something um, of, the, of the biographer's sensibility in there, or why are you reading this particular book? I mean, it doesn't, otherwise it just, it, the flavor of the book is really important to me. And, you know, as, as it is when we read fiction, I think, right? You're, re you're reading for an authorial voice and you wanna be able to feel as if you can trust that authorial voice, but you also don't want to feel as if it bores you to tears. So I think there's a certain element of that. For me, it's, I don't know why, it's very appealing. This probably says a lot more about me than you would want to know that he was such a failure. I mean, that it's so fascinating to me that he goes from having really amounted to nothing for four decades to sort of flaming into sort of brilliant life. And then, frankly, having a third act, which is as ungratifying and unhelpful as the first act was. So something about the fact that the life separates itself into those three very different um, acts um, is really intriguing to me. And, and in a way, it kind of felt like it made his story more accessible and like more human of like, you know, he didn't just like, you know, burst from childhood into, you know, the, you know, Samuel Adams that, you know, was revered as a founding father, you know, but just that, you know, he had I, I his think, ups and I think downs. That's true. And, and I, and I think that's true. And also that the lack of vanity is something that really appealed to me. And that's that's the reason in large part why he doesn't write his version of events. He's very modest. At one point, he sort of allows himself to say to his wife in a letter, you know, I, I've long ago discovered that one must sacrifice the sweetest gratifications in life for the sake of one's country. And then he stops himself and he realizes that even that statement sounds vain. And he sort of takes it back and says, I don't mean to sound vain. And it's only to her that he'll actually say something like that. Um, so that too, I found to be um, kind of deeply compelling that he's, um, he, this is really for him all about ideals and not about ambition. Whereas John Adams, from the moment he starts writing, start, starts keeping a diary, has an eye on how he's going to be remembered for posterity or how he's going to make his mark on the world. I do miss letters. Does that date me? <laughs> I like, no, I, mean, I like reading letters and I think what, you know, what do we you have? You know what else, you know what else I missed, especially when I was working on this book? I missed typewritten letters. I mean, you haven't Ooh, lived yeah. until you've read, yes, you haven't lived until you spent your life reading 18th century handwriting. So oh, I can. yes, and, and, and you, you point to the obvious question, which is how is one going to write biography in the age of email? Yeah. Right. Where, where are the documents going to be that one would need to reconstruct an inner life? encrypted email that no one can access <laughs> I, I keep thinking there's like some you know magical server in the sky where all our emails are stored and you know the biographer will somehow be able to summon those in 25 years but so all the more important um protection of free press right exactly um 
you have a couple of, well, maybe more, but opinion pieces in the New York Times that, um, one from 2019 and one from 2020 that I thought were really fantastic. Um, you, you talk about our interest in democracy. Um, and one of the statements of the opinion piece from 2020 um, was about statue toppling and um, vandalism and um, of the time. And the statement, you know, we generally sanitize the violence that preceded the declaration and that the idea was to minimize the terror while invigorating the resistance. And I found this little bit of information particularly interesting, and it really made me stop and think about, again, what I think I know about things, Um, that the Patriots swabbed the decks after the Boston Tea Party. Um, and history reciprocated, turning a riot into a tea party. Um, it w- I just thought it was a, a fantastic opinion piece. And um, I, I definitely I think, recommend I that, that anyone, sh- everyone should read it. <laughs> um, I think that that is also a contributing factor to why Samuel Adams falls off the radar, because he's so much associated with the kind of, you know, brash, um, sharp-elbowed, messy part of the revolution. I mean, we, we like to think the revolution was this very sanitized affair with a, you know, a bunch of, you know, very enlightened men sitting around in Philadelphia discussing, um, you know, very high-minded concepts. But it's preceded by, you know, more than a decade of of violence, really. I mean, Boston Tea Party is the destruction of property. And I think we just, we'd rather turn our back on those messy years, those anarchic years, um, our revolution is meant to somehow be a sort of um, a, a cleaner revolution in some ways, a more noble revolution. And Adams, of course, gets thrown out with the bathwater when you do that because he's so much associated um, with that with that disorder. And in the 2019 piece um, that you wrote, what a witch hunt really looks like. Um, one of the questions that you had, um, which I think is you know, really applicable to today to miss, you know, the dealing with misinformation and disinformation. Um, you know, the question was, how does truth win out in a world of fire with falsehood? Or put differently, where does delusion go to die? I thought. And, and you're, you know, you again, sort of detail some history of a 34 year old merchant named Thomas Brattle. Um, and that you know, you said it's unclear who first spoke out against the actual single greatest witch hunt in American history, but he was one who did. And again, it just leaves you with something to think about, like, you know, we all can play a part in these things. <laughs> I hate that we're that we're still even having to talk about that. I mean, I hated yeah. the fact that I wrote this book about witch hunts and then suddenly we were all talking about witch hunts. Yeah. I mean, that I hadn't seen that coming. And, and I... You would have thought by now we'd be past that. But yeah. yes, it just seems to be, you know, especially with the explosion of social media, it seems to be so much the issue of our times. How do you how, how do you still stand for truth? And how do you make the truth heard when it seems to be drowned out from a thousand different angles? Um, but I'm so glad you mentioned Brattle because Brattle's the first person or among the first people who speak out against the, the witch trials because he can afford to. He's very yeah. rich. He's well-placed. He's not a part of the religious community. But he does so anonymously because even for someone as 
well-established as he. Most people who had spoken out were then accused of witchcraft, of course. So even for someone like him that was going out on a serious limb to be able to say, you know what, this looks like a miscarriage of justice. When people say they saw things with their eyes closed, that's not what they're seeing, that's what they're imagining. And you know that just blows the top off of nine months of Massachusetts history. But it seems like we're back to some extent in those same four thickets today. Yeah. So as we've kind of addressed throughout the whole interview, books have been a part of your professional life for several years in your role as editor, essayist, writer. Are there any books that have, you know, really stayed with you or any that have inspired or informed your work? Oh my gosh, there are, there are shelves of them. Some, yeah. some well-known, some less well-known. Um, I think when I was writing this book, I was, I went back to a lot of Joseph Ellis's books, which I just think are so a crisply and brilliantly written, and so such perfect distillations of American history. Um, I was very influenced. I read a lot of Nabokov at a certain point in my life, so that that, <laughs> that book was largely just an excuse to go back to reading Nabokov. Um, I think I was largely influenced by an odd little book that you may know by Harold Nicholson called Some People, which are these lightly fictionalized portraits of British figures in the, in the 20s and 30s, and they're just kind of brilliant sort of diamond cut 30 page um, mini portraits, basically. Um, so I think sort of all over the map, there's, it is, there's not always a book that I turn to when I'm working, I tend to pretty much subsist on a steady diet of fiction, um, possibly just because it doesn't feel like work and possibly because the prose is usually better. <laughs> And I want to escape because I want to escape desperately. Oh, for sure. Sorry. Uh, do you have a go-to genre or author when you do have that time for pleasure reading or not work reading? Um, I just read the new Elizabeth Strout, which I adored, a William. Mm -hmm. And I'm about midway through the new, the new Kate Atkinson. But, oh. but I think, I think I'm pretty much just kind of all over the place. I love memoir. I'll read any memoir about anything. The, the more niche, the more bizarre, the better. Um, and it's very hard for me to resist a beautifully written novel. While the revolutionary Samuel Adams will be available in stores and libraries on October 25th. Um, thank you so much, Stacey Schiff, for joining us today on the first 50 pages. It has been a joy to talk with you. Thank you both so much. Thank you. That you guys, those were the best questions ever. Well, oh, thank, well, thank you. you. <laughs> Talk about doing your homework. I mean, oh my God.